0: And this is always the kind of introduction I give to people when I do readings that human life is a dance between these three factors are called character, nature, and fate. So your nature is free, fundamentally free and it has this capacity for self-awareness and for reflexive consciousness. Mm-hmm. But then we have this thing called fate that we inherit from our ancestors. But then getting into like astrology, there's also this thing called character that we
1: have. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Virtue is standing in that place where we can breathe in potential, where we can touch a sense of possibility while at the same time being able to live in the world of limits within the constraints of biology and the inertia of culture. This earthly realm of space and time entangled in a complexity ungraspable through the matrix of human story, full of both beauty in brutality, of being, observing, becoming, of mind ameshed with biology, chemistry, and electricity. Blood and flesh ever at the threshold of emerging and declining. We live at the crossroads of yin and yang. We live in a present inhabited by the echoes of yesterday and the whispers of tomorrow. And moment to moment, we make choices that sail our lives in a particular direction with maps that are constantly changing. our choices and character ever influencing our fate? Virtue in the old Chinese is about doing what's appropriate given your place, circumstances, and abilities. Virtue is the action that comes from non-doing, by allowing the arising of what is to become to be what it is, shepherding that which is ours to care for, recognizing that we are not responsible for what happens in our lives, but we are accountable for our response. The world is rarely to our liking. We were born into life without asking and into a world that was made by others, into a world with wildly uneven distributions of climate and resources, a world imbued with stunning potential, that is easily overlooked because opportunity so often presents as a problem, not a solution. We come into a world that is not of our making and often enough not to our liking as well. It feels oppressive and unfair. It's easy to miss how the troubles we persevere are like the diamond cutter's wheel that grinds clarity and brilliance into the rough facets of our potential. All alchemical processes require fire and pressure, a container that holds us together as we come apart and reconstitute. And sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between what imprisons us and what liberates us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment And the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how.
2: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and proper herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face, so subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: And be sure to mention the code cheological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Where do we come from and where are we headed? I suspect these are uniquely human questions. It's curious that we call ourselves human beings when the other creatures we share this world with seem much more adapted to being while we are given to fretting, planning, scheming, hoping, and striving. Our unique gift of reflective consciousness allows us to interact with the world like no other creature, but it does bring a price in the suffering that we experience. In today's conversation with Gregory Doan, we explore the experience of being human, how our intelligence is one amongst many, and while our sense of self is fabricated, there are also influences in this world that impact and shape us as well. What's more, we all have a fate. But that fate is not like we understand in the West, where it is out of our hands, but rather that the influence of our character can shape our experience in life and how those experiences in turn then shape us. Like the clay teaches the potter how to shape the clay. Like the patient sparks something in the practitioner who can then assist the patient. I hope that you will enjoy this meandering conversation with Gregory. Let's get into it. Gregory Doan, welcome to Geological.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: I'm delighted to have you here. A little while back, I read a missive that you published for our profession which was delightful. You've gotten yourself into Polestar Astrology. We're going to get into that. I don't know about other years, but I know that this year you write a whole thing at the beginning of the year like, okay, it's this new tiger year and uh, here's what Polestar Astrology has to say about that. And it's not a small or light reading. It's like really thick. I printed it out Mm -hmm. double-sided and it's like, well, it's a quarter inch or more thick of paper. Very extensive. So I'm delighted that you're here, and I'm looking forward to digging into Polestar Astrology. How on earth did you come across that? How did you get started with that kind of thing?
0: Well, it's a very long story. It's always interesting prospect to tell your story. I never know where exactly to begin. And it's so intertwined with Chinese medicine as well, so that my introduction to astrology went hand in hand with Chinese medicine, and they've been kind of intertwined all along the way. A long story short, my primary interest in life, I would say, has been uh, wisdom traditions of Asia, primarily India, China, and Tibet. And I've been fascinated by Mm. culture, religion, history, and, and particularly the spiritual traditions of those countries since I was very young. And had the good fortune to be introduced to those ideas at a really early age by my father, who didn't raise me with any kind of um, uh, religious Christian or Western religious influence. He was kind of a hippie who, in the 70s, he studied Eastern spirituality. And so he kind of introduced me as a kid with that worldview. So I grew up with the worldview of those different traditions. And so I've just kind of been on that path since I was a kid, studying them and interested in meditation practice and and been practicing since I was really young. I was introduced to uh, Chinese Buddhism at the age of like 13, I think. There's a Buddhist monastery in my neighborhood growing up, and I uh, started going there as a kid. Uh, as a Taiwanese monks, and as Chan Chan Buddhism, and so I was kind of introduced to the Chinese tradition through them. Oh. And being a very traditional, mm-hmm. and very traditional Chinese tradition. And they were living in my neighborhood. It's called Buddha Gate Monastery. I started going there. Uh, yeah, like, I don't know, sometime when I was an early teen and uh, started practicing meditation and learning meditation from them. And they were very kind of, I don't want to say pure, but just very authentic representation of the Chinese tradition and Buddhism. It made a huge imprint on me early on.
1: Sure. I mean, I'm thinking age 13, age 13, that's puberty. That's when human beings go through this dramatic change, right? Dramatic. Yes. And and here you are like, oh, meditating with Buddhist monks.
0: Well, I had all the other normal teenage stuff going on too. Uh.
1: <laughs> well, of, of course you did. I mean, how could you not? You're living in America and you're a teenager, so of course you have all that, but you also have this. And it's great You have this influence from your dad. I remember in the house that I grew up in, My mom didn't really read, but my dad read. Mm -hmm. And so, my dad was always bringing books into the house. Yeah. And, you know, as a kid, you're just like hanging out. You know, it's like, well, what are these books over here? Yeah. And he was interested in poetry and psychology and all this different stuff. It's like, what the hell is this? And you just dig into your dad's books. It's such a phenomenal influence. It's something, you know, I don't think you hear about it so much. Yeah. These days, the kind of influence that a father can have on a son. In those ways, it's very, very profound.
0: Yes. And I had definitely had that experience. My dad and my mom, they both read a lot. So my, my house was an absolute library. Every single room had bookshelves that were just full of books. And so as a kid, and I was only an only child, so I spent a lot of time alone because my parents worked a lot. And before the internet uh, and before, uh, you know, I watched a lot of TV as a kid too, but I spent most of my time when I was alone. Reading all these books, and then my dad would come home and we'd talk about them and uh, have discussions and all different kinds of subjects poetry, religion, spirituality, history, and so on. And so it was interesting to have that influence as well because I didn't have as much of the kind of Christian overlay in in my consciousness that a lot of people do have and and have a kind of have to recover from in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. But we kind of get that anyway. I grew up Jewish, and so. There was that, but given the country that we live in, in the times that we grow up in, you know, like you have the national holiday. Christmas is kind of a national holiday, and and there's no way to get away from it. Yeah, but you know, I get it that if you didn't grow up specifically in it, it gives you a little room to maneuver.
0: Yeah, it's something I, I say a lot to people, especially in astrology readings, and that context is everything. And astrology is trying to offer. A different kind of context in which to put our life and our experience. Mm. So yeah, there isn't any way of escaping (laughs) the context of the culture that we live in. And we have many different bodies that we live in, and one of them is cultural. And uh, so that that shared experience is powerful, even if we don't. But again, not going to church every Sunday and not having that kind of worldview pushed on me, I was able to look at it from the outside and look kind of critically. And I actually did go to church once I remember, just because I was curious. I was like, not all of my friends, but a lot of friends went to church. And mm-hmm. I remember I walked, and I said, I told my parents I wanted to read the Bible. And <laughs> I was like, I just wanted to know what it was all about. I went to church, and I started trying to read the Bible, and I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. I actually walked out of the church. Yeah. And I sat in the parking lot, and I remember I refused to go in, because I just thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. Didn't fit for you. <laughs> uh, not that it necessarily is. I do actually path i've studied kind of all the different traditions and i've gone pretty deeply into the kind of mystical traditions of christianity as well like a lot of writers like thomas merton in particular was a huge influence on me and uh, gave me a different view of Mm -hmm. the deeper sides of uh, christianity studying things like carthusians and the trappist monks and eastern orthodox they have their own mystical side as well
1: i think all the traditions have their mystical side islam has the sufis the Jewish people have the Kabbalah. it's like there's this stuff for general consumption, and then there's mm-hmm. like oh, you want to look behind and you know like see how this watch is put together. you want to look into the gears and you know how's all that stuff interconnected? yeah, it's there.
0: I was just gonna to say continue again, how the hell did I get in touch with uh, astrology and pole star astrology? So actually my father was an astrologer and his father, so it's kind of a generational thing they did Western astrology. But I've also been introduced to astrology as part of my upbringing. And my grandfather, I I only met once, but he did something like over 10,000 astrology readings in his lifetime. So there's some kind of a momentum in my ancestry for this practice. Mm -hmm. And the only time I I met him once and he read my astrology chart. And that uh, also made a a kind of big influence on me. So somewhere in my 20s, I started studying with lots of different teachers. And I came across probably what I consider to be my primary spiritual mentor. It's a man named Dharma Bodhi, and you've had Brian McMahon on this show a couple of times, I believe. Yeah. So, Brian, I can talk about him as well because he's my primary kind of Chinese medicine teacher. Mm -hmm. But he's also studying with Dharma Bodhi right now. He's living in Costa Rica with him, and that's how Brian and I met. So, anyways, I started studying with uh, Dharma, and he teaches a lot of different things, but he also taught Indian astrology, Jyotish. And there is simply no way to be his student without learning astrology. And up until that point, I had kind of dabbled, and I, I started studying Indian astrology, actually, really in-depth. And I started studying with Dharma. He was, at one point, a very good friends, and close. his school was very close with uh, Leo Ming. I can say a lot about as well, but he talked about Ming a lot. They were very close, and he was always referencing him, and he, Ming was a huge influence on Dharma. So I started looking into, while I was studying with him, I started looking into Ming. And I started listening to his recordings, and I just became absolutely fascinated by him. And his teachings blew me away as like nothing I'd ever heard. Very amazing human being. And Dharma encouraged me to study with him. And at the time I was living in Thailand, I actually spent a year and a half living in Thailand with Dharma Bodhi back when he had a center there. And at that time I had met Brian McMahon, who was on his way back to the United States after having lived in China.
1: Yeah, he'd been there a long time. Yeah,
0: like ten, fifteen years. And he he met Dharma in China and then started coming to his center in Thailand. And then we met there and Brian, you know, was practiced Chinese medicine. He was the first person I met who is a yeah. you know acupuncturist and herbalist and hearing him talk about it, it it got me intrigued. And then as I was studying Ming's teachings, Ming he presented everything about the Chinese tradition in this kind of holistic way. He didn't really separate them. So he taught Chinese medicine, he taught astrology, he taught Taoism, he taught all these things kind of all at once. And so I got introduced to Chinese medicine, and I was studying Chinese astrology through Ming. And I was kind of in this transition point where I had to come back to the United States. This was in 2015. And I didn't have enough money to basically to stay there, but I had just enough to, to kind of start over. Uh, back in the United States. And I Mm -hmm. was in this period, like, what do I do? (laughs) Uh, At this point, I had like three college degrees that meant nothing. Like I have a degree in Buddhist studies, which is not a job.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not.
0: (laughs) So I was kind of like, well, what do I do? And uh, I was studying Ming and uh, just fascinated by the Chinese tradition as he presented it. And I decided to come back to the United States and I uh, started doing just for fun, I had been doing studying Polestar astrology, and I started doing readings. I just put it out there. I s- said, anybody, like my friends and family, you know, not charging money, just for fun. Start doing these astrology readings. And the first one that I did, the person loved it so much they paid me for it, uh, and I said, "Oh, okay. Well, maybe I can do this for a while, just to do something in the meantime." And so I started doing readings more officially. And I s- created the website and I started writing the blog, which became kind of more and more extensive. And in that time, I also decided I mean, I'd met Brian again, and he was kind of on his way to teach at this school NUNM, UNM. And he told me about it. And uh, I was also, you know, again, deeply immersed in Chinese astrology and Chinese medicine just started to make sense. Mm-hmm. I kind of just clicked with me like, oh, here's a profession. Here's something I can do that I can yeah. get paid for and make money that's in line with uh, all these things that I've studied that was actually a path and that actually had a tradition behind it. And then that was you know established uh, in the United States. And it's a great way for me to help and benefit people. So I went to Portland and I went to NUNM. And there you go. And uh, during that time as well, I kept doing readings and I kept writing the blog and the blog has gotten more and more extensive every year and become really focused on the new year as a kind of, as all I've really had time for, while going to school, you know, it takes up most of my time. So I pretty much just in terms of the blog, do this new year's blog every year and do readings occasionally when I can.
1: Yeah, so you know, that's fascinating. You come back from Asia, like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. What do I do is such a great question. I suspect a lot of people that are reaching out to you, the question actually in their mind is like, what do I do? Right, they're looking for guidance. They're looking for inspiration. They're looking for where is my path? Do I even know my path? What do I do? Yeah, it's a damn good question. I think all of us, you know, at some point in our life, we have to ask that. And often, we ask it more than once in our life. Which is where career changes come in, and marriages or divorces happen, and businesses get created or dissolved. There's there's all kinds of things. That, That very pertinent question of what do I do. And it kind of unfolds naturally for you. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I'll just do some readings. Oh, that'll be fun. You do a reading and someone gives you money. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: All right. What was that like for you in that moment? It's like, I'm going to do this for free. I don't know what I'm doing. And suddenly someone gives you money. (laughs) What happened inside for you at that moment?
0: Well, I didn't think too much of it at at first in terms of like, oh, here's a a job or something I can do for a living. But it was... I never thought in my, that I would do astrology readings. It, was ne- it never really occurred to me.
1: It was never on the radar, even though hmm. you are a third-generation astrologer. <laughs> yeah. It was never on your radar.
0: No, and it still isn't in a way <laughs> because reluctant to do it ever since the beginning. I enjoy doing it, and at the time when I first started doing it, I did it, I was in this kind of transition space where I didn't really have anything else to do. From the very beginning, I kind of had this feeling of like, I like doing this, but I don't think this can be all that I do, or this isn't really a job. It's not really reliable enough for me to like earn a living, and it's too inconsistent, Mm. and it's too draining on on me in a certain (laughs) way. Because if you ask anybody who's gotten a reading from me, they're like three to four hours long, and. I pour like everything into them, Mm -hmm. and I prepare like three to four hours for every reading. So it's something that's really extensive and takes a lot out of me.
1: So you have to be careful with your energy and your resources. Yes. So it's a good thing you went into acupuncture because, well, first of all, acupuncture is applied Chinese philosophy. Yes. So that's helpful. And this is so wonderful about acupuncture. You can get some needles in, and you get them in in the right place. You can just slip out of the room <laughs> and, and the information that people are now hooked up to within themselves, they do the work. You don't have to. Mm. And that can be a tremendous way of sort of conserving your own resources. You can bring everything that you have to the moment and to bear you know, for that treatment and then they get to digest it.
0: Yeah. And it's also the same goes for astrology as well, in the sense of, you know, I'm presenting when I do astrology, when I do something like the blog, I'm presenting a tremendous amount of information to people that might be completely out of their context and completely foreign or strange, introducing ideas and symbols. And it's up to people. I I don't know what people do with the information. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: I've never had an astrology reading that people that somebody didn't love and really appreciate or didn't resonate on a really deep level.
1: And be confused by it at the same time. Yes. Yes.
0: And I've gotten good feedback over the years too, in terms of like people come back to me months later, years later and be like, wow, that thing you said was, I didn't understand at the time, but now it totally makes sense. And it was really changed my life. So it's really, it's rewarding in that sense.
1: Yes. Well, it's like an acupuncture needle like that. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to one of the things you said this a little bit earlier. I had a conversation with another acupuncturist about Polestar a little while back and mm-hmm. Sheldon Cruitt she had some things you know, that she brought up and mentioned about it, and it, it kind of spun my head around a little bit. And you just said something a few minutes ago in our conversation about that we live in different bodies, mm-hmm. right? There's like the cultural body, there's a physical body. Tell us more about that. You know, that's one of those things, I heard her say it, I just heard you say it, and I go, okay, that's interesting, and I kind of get a sense, but it's just my imagination. I understand that I live in these like, different spheres of influence in the world. Tell us more about these different bodies. Yes.
0: Well, there's a lot to say about that idea because it's quite profound. And a number of different traditions have this kind of idea that uh, we have many layers that are, extend beyond our kind of personal sense of self. So Polestar astrology in particular is looking at what i call our ancestral body this idea that we come into life with a kind of momentum behind us the body that you receive from your parents you know it came from them so that their bodies and then behind them behind them we have this huge family tree behind us of thousands of people and most people don't die finished most people that would be the definition of a good human life is to. And to die well would be to not have any regrets, not have any th- projects that we didn't feel like we completed, but there's a lot that we inherit from getting a human body, this unfinished business. And the context of our embodiment is very large. So our ancestors and all of their influence and all of their unfinished stories and so on. So that's one body, <laughs> ancestral body. And then I, as I mentioned too, how the context, we can't really escape, yeah, the context in which we live. So we're deeply embedded. Human beings are by nature social mm-hmm. and and relational. And the Chinese tradition in particular, especially Confucian tradition, understands a human being as an open-ended series of dynamic relationships. We don't really have a self. We're not individual separate beings. We're defined by our relations and our relationships with everything else. And but our culture in particular, and this one is very hyper individualistic and geared towards this kind of entrepreneurial, rugged, individual, isolated experience. And even though we have that experience, the reality is we are still deeply influenced by our relationships, even if we're alone. Like during the pandemic, I think this kind of got highlighted for a lot of people that even when you're alone, that itself kind of highlights... How deeply relational we are in the absence of having relationships in the absence of all of those things and so we have generational body as well that i come into being in a certain time period with a lot of people and we share a certain kind of experience kids who grew up in the 80s and 90s millennials that's be my generation i guess mm-hmm. we have a certain shared experience and then and that's a kind of body uh, we have political body if we have a, a shared view or, or experience so many that we have. But there's also in ourself too, perhaps Chinese medical or or yogic perspective, we have energy body, we have this actual physical body that we have, we have a mental body. So that really when we take a step back and look at what a human being is and ask the question, this is what I always tell people too when I introduce astrology, is we have to back up and ask this question, what is a human being? And it's a human being is actually not this experience of being an isolated self, but actually this huge dynamic multi relational complex web of interactions and and influences and to look at those as bodies, meaning that they're not just they're embodied. We experience them actually as intertwining of all these influences in our physical body.
1: So like our Chinese medicine community mm-hmm. that we are a part of. That's a body, yeah. So that's a body. Yeah. People that love cats, that's a body, right? Mm-hmm. Like wherever there are these relational overlaps, you could say, "Yes, that's a certain kind of a body." And I don't know that the Buddhists talk about this that there is no self. It, that's just something we've fabricated together. Mm-hmm. It very much is. There is these entangled, these ever entangled relationships. Yes,
0: yeah, because our nature is is self reflexive. So our our nature is is awareness, and our nature is has the capacity to to know it's a to know, you know our most basic awareness is aware of what's happening in its field of experience it's kind of naked knowing this is our kind of pure <laughs> original nature but because we have this capacity to self reflect we have the capacity to identify and that's kind of how in the you know Buddhist view how we create karma and from the Chinese view how we create the idea of fate mm. so in terms of astrology, basically, ideas we call character, nature, and fate. And this is always the kind of introduction I give to people when I do readings that human life is a dance between these three factors. I call character, nature, and fate. So your nature is free, fundamentally free, and it has this capacity for self awareness and for reflexive consciousness. Mm-hmm. But then we have this thing called fate that we inherit from our ancestors. But then getting into like astrology, there's also this thing called character that we have. And that comes from our birth time in its relationship to the flow of time and the cycles of time that we find ourselves in. So right, like the idea of the Chinese New Year is talking about the character of the year, being the tiger, for example, but that's also something we have. And this has a kind of influence on us, you know, it kind of compels us in a certain way. But then when we identify with all those things, all those different factors, and then and if we don't have the context to understand all these different dynamic relationships happening inside of us, then we label it and become attached to the story of it. And that's, again, the kind of source of suffering from a Buddhist point of view and how we generate karma and how we generate fate is the attachment to and the belief in the story and a self, a uh, independent and isolated self that kind of goes through all these experiences that happen to us rather than it just being this kind of open flowing
1: <laughs> thing. So, I want to come back to fate here. Because mm-hmm. that's such an interesting word. And when I think about it you know, in Western terms, like in English in particular, fate is, it's like almost the same word as doomed, like you're doomed to something. Uh-huh. Like you're going in a direction and that's just the way it's gonna go. It doesn't matter how you steer your life, you're going over that waterfall. That's it. Yeah. But I think fate, what little I understand of it in Chinese, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more malleable. Yes. All right? So there's this phrase in Chinese called yuan fun. Yuan fun is, it's like fate meets opportunity. It's not like you're doomed, but it's like there's someone, maybe you could have a life with them. And you might be like crossing on a street somehow and there's like a moment where you could connect or there's a moment where you could not connect but if you connect now there's this incredible possibility that can unfold but only if you like in that moment somehow something happens to catalyze that mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah absolutely in your sense of fate definitely yeah
0: yeah fate is a loaded word uh, in english and we have the idea that the word karma has come into popular speech.
4: Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the Governor Channel or the Sea of Yang, the Primal Reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth, but this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at annsecilsturman. Thanks Michael, back to you.
1: Yeah, like doomed, right? Like you're doomed to this. Like no matter what you do, yeah. this is where the ride is going to take you. Yeah. So tell us more about this malleable aspect mm-hmm. of fate. Yeah.
0: So this goes back to this threefold idea of character, nature, and fate, that they're out there in a relationship with one another. And so I always tell people, remember, your nature is free. Your original nature is fundamentally free. It's unfixed and it cannot be conditioned.
1: I don't know if that's good news or bad news. It's not, it's neither. It's
0: neither. Because you can't do anything with it. Original nature is not a thing you can do anything with. It's very disappointing in that sense. Spiritual path hypes it up a lot, but it's not something to really get excited about. Because uh, as soon as you make an idea out of it and as soon as you think it's a thing, you're just in a concept about it. It's not long in that nature anymore. So it has no story. But because our nature is free, we can make choice. So there's always this question of of free will, which is not really in any Asian tradition. I've never really come across this idea of free will, but the West is obsessed with it. So I'd say people, we have free-ish will in the sense of that you have a free nature, but we are conditioned and we're deeply conditioned in a lot of ways by a lot of things. So going back to the idea of bodies and the, the ancestors, so like how deeply are we conditioned is really big. Like, we we're conditioned by generations of ancestors, we're conditioned by our culture, we're conditioned by all these things evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, all these things that we have programmed into us. There's so many things that condition our behavior. We also have this factor of character that we're on this cycle of time that's influencing us as well. That I might, and I describe the time and influence of time like weather. Like, if it's snowing outside, you are free to go outside without a jacket on. But it's likely that you will because there's consequences if you don't. You'll be cold, you might get sick. And so we have choice, but there's so many other factors that are happening. And so this is the kind of crux of this tradition is trying to understand all of these influences in us so we can identify one, have this reference to be able to identify this kind of free original nature that we have that allows us to choose because at, at the end of the day, like fate is not in karma, is something that we can change. But it's not so easy because we have such deep emotions attached to our stories.
1: Hang on a second. Let me see if I'm following this. If I change my story, I can change my fate. Is that what I'm hearing? Change your story, change your fate. Yes. So but we
0: want to be free of fate. This is the pulsar tradition is we want to be liberated from fate altogether. So if you can change your story into a different story and then you just have a different
1: fate. (laughs) You have a different fate. It's going to take you down a different road.
0: But also this idea that is very integrained into Buddhist view that we do actually want to create good karma. We want to create good fate. We want to generate positive merit and in good circumstances and good fortune for ourselves so that because the harder The more suffering, the more difficult our circumstances, the more negative fate we generate Mm -hmm. with people, the more conflicting relationships, the more consequences that we have, our negative behavior, the harder it is for us to actually to see the choice that we have in every moment, to see our original nature, to know that we actually are free in essence. So that's the first step often is that before we can really delve in and, and experience this kind of open freeness The fundamental emptiness of our situation we have to first generate positive things by through generosity and through uh, service to others by atoning for our mistakes we've made to be able to recognize them and so on be able to say like oh wow i can't believe i did that again why did i do that again i have some kind of pattern i'm enacting over and over and over again and wow that really where does that even come from you know like why we all have somewhere in our life where we do something negative over and over and over again, or have some kind of repeated experience of why did that happen to me again? Why do I keep doing that? And we have no context in this life for it. Like I didn't do something to cause. I don't perceive that I did anything to cause it. It just keeps happening to me. So then that's what we see in in charts, in birth charts. And so this idea of studying your astrology is to understand all of these places where not only where you have, we call ghosts, Mm. which is like the, (laughs) where we get possessed by our ancestors to repeat negative patterns, but also where we have positive influence. So we know how and where to generate our positive influence in the world. So like for me, all of my fate is in career, in my chart, but I have terrible fate for relationships, terrible fate for money, terrible fate for, I don't have any fate to have kids. I mean, in theory, in my chart, but to meet teachers, I have great fate to kind of contribute something to the world in some way and so i'm trying to put my energy in that direction and not obsess and focus on all this other stuff
1: because the fate is malleable yeah and let me just riff on this a moment so you go deep into your fate whatever it is Mm -hmm. then i suspect other things happen you know you generate merit you generate i'm going to say a positive flow Mm mm-hmm or let's say a virtuous flow, and I don't mean virtuous like good, bad, but virtuous in in kind of the duh sense of virtue that we have in Chinese, right? That you're kind of living in alignment Mm -hmm. with what you are and who you are and what you're capable of, you know, like the Zheng Chi, right? And in living that, other opportunities can arise that are also virtuous. And so you're taking the cycle from let's say, a cycle of decline to a cycle of generativity. Mm-hmm. Does that
0: make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And the kind of traditional view is that the more we do that, the more opportunity we have to practice. Mm-hmm. But you also have to generate that karma as well, taking the time and the space out of all the stories to kind of and take a step back. And that creates a different kind of karma as well, a different kind of fate. But fate is also not... It's very open and very malleable. So I'm going back to this idea in the sense of it's not specific, it's general and you make of it what you do with your choices. And it's also fundamentally driven by character. So when I do astrology reading, I look at fate, it's like it's symbols. So we took a look at a symbol and say, this is, it's a kind of chi. Fate is chi. It's like everything. Time is, chi is time. Yeah. It's hard to to say something better than chi. Chi is the, Perfect term for it in the sense of that we... Yeah, um, it sounds
1: like a great term for it.
0: So, like you said, that opportunity, you might meet somebody in the street or you might come across somebody in your life for an opportunity, but you have to choose it and you have to...
1: Mm -hmm. It's like you have to turn toward it. You have to orient yourself toward it.
0: You have to activate. And then once you do that, you set in in motion a a lot of other circumstances.
1: Yeah. I've had this phrase that has gone through my mind for years. It started off as like self recrimination, and then it was just then it was like, oh, I think this is kind of how life works. But the, the phrase that's gone through my mind for a while is, "I met my fate on the road that I took to avoid it." <laughs> yes.
0: So, to some degree, it is. It's not avoidable. Well, some circumstances in life where I think we do have to avoid negativity. Mm-hmm. There's this idea of uh sleeping tigers. Sometimes you have to just step around it. You don't want to wake the sleeping tiger. But then you'll come across another one somewhere in the road, and often what we don't work with and what we don't resolve comes back worse the next time.
1: Yes, I've noticed this in my life
0: <laughs> We avoid something because we don't want to go through the difficulty of whatever it is, apologizing or
1: changing our life fundamentally
0: changing our behavior, you know like getting you know an addictive habit or mm-hmm. or whatever it is that we avoid.
1: A story that we love dearly and don't want to let it go.
0: <laughs> yeah, we all have them. But, you know, this is uh, definitely my experience as well. It's like the, they re- repeat and they kind of seem to get worse e- each time because it's trying to, you know, there's a compounding effect of each time you go through a kind of experience and you don't get the lesson. You don't really, we say, resolve that fate or liberate it. We often attach more conflicting emotion to it. It gets deeper. We get more invested in it. And then it gets sometimes harder to change as we get older because we just get more stuck in our ways. Well, there's and it's condi- conditioning, you know? So when you do something once, do something twice, three times, then you have a pattern of it. And then it gets really hard to do it, to stop doing it.
1: Yeah. I've got a friend, he's an Israeli friend of mine. And Israelis are so damn direct. And we were talking about like, you know, raising kids. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, yeah, you make a mistake once, it's a mistake. You make a mistake twice. I forget what he said, but it's like you make that mistake the third time, now it's a habit. Yes. And now you're really in trouble. Because what could have been changed very easily had you learned that lesson the first time. Yeah. And now you've compounded on the second time. And now on the third time, you're making a million excuses for yourself.
0: Mm -hmm. Now imagine if you've done that for 9,000 lifetimes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So what I hear you saying is we come into this life with a momentum. Yeah. Driven by our ancestors. I'm not even sure what that means at this moment. Yeah. Because some of it is physiological. We can talk about DNA and just looking at evolution. Some of it is psycho-spiritual. Some of it, I mean, as we're having this conversation, I'm not even sure what it is. There's all these entangled influences. Yes. And it sounds like if you don't resolve them in this life. Okay, so... I was going to say, you get to carry them forward. What's this you that we're talking about? That's the question. Yeah,
0: that's a really interesting question. And there's a number of different kind of traditional answers that attempt to address this idea of, well, what gets reborn if there's no self?
1: And because there are many traditions that talk about it, Mm -hmm. let's just limit it to the pole star view as it's unfolding in you Mm -hmm. through your teachers your sense
0: yeah it's tough because the buddhist explanation for example is very satisfying and it makes sense but the pulsar doesn't really actually have much of a an explanation for this because the view of what's happening is so it's kind of effervescent like that what we're actually experiencing from moment to moment is just this unfolding cycles of of time and there's basically just patterns it's all just patterns that are kind of flowing in these rhythms and in these cycles, whether it be the five element cycle, whether it be the twelve animals, whether it be the rhythm of the the stars. So, pole star astrology looks at arrangement of uh, stars, constellations, and those make a pattern in the sky. And so, basically, all that's happening is these patterns that are just unfolding, and we are just a collection of patterns. So, we are nature itself as patterned, and everything that's happening everything that's unfolding from moment to moment is just a demonstration of these interaction of all these patterns happening all at once to produce our experience and question of uh which how these these patterns are, are ongoing and how do they get transmitted from one generation to another or from one lifetime to another this kind of a mystery in terms of like is there some kind of mechanism of it or or is there something that contains this pattern? And I suppose it would be shun Mm. or perhaps is this idea of the five spirits and that the Hun and Po uh, in particular are considered to be quite, you know, when you get Po is really the physical embodied That's the pattern of the physical body that you inherit from your ancestors. Yes. The Po contains the, the ongoing patterns of that and the Hun contains the ongoing patterns of, from lifetime to lifetime is one idea and it's just a stream of consciousness basically it, the idea that consciousness is the fundamental reality perception and this is the immortal that's the chinese view that you know our nature is immortal it doesn't it die and its nature doesn't get conditioned but it, it does have within it a kind of a stream it's like and it carries impressions these get embedded in it like textures so when you like it, it is malleable but it's like water or like you know, you can, it's nature, it doesn't have a shape, but put it into a shape and like ice, or you put it into a, a container, it takes that shape.
1: Right. You put water in a Coke bottle. Yeah. You have water in a Coke bottle shape. You put water in a coffee cup, you have a coffee cup shape water. Yeah. Let me see if I'm hearing this correctly. There's a portion that is unconditioned. Yeah. And there is a portion that is conditioned. They are existing simultaneously.
0: Yeah. That's yin and yang, basically. that
1: Yin being more conditioned and yang being less conditioned?
0: Either way. It's hard to say which one is which. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because when I think of yin, I think of form. Yeah. I think of substance. I think of things that are less malleable because they're denser. Yeah. Generally speaking, and yang is less dense and more ephemeral. And I'm not putting a value judgment, good or bad. I'm, I'm just looking at... Like character and nature, mm-hmm. it's like the wind is not formed. Wind is more yang. The wind is not formed, but you can see its moving shape in things that are formed. Leaves on a tree, more yin.
0: Yeah, I think this is a great practice, something to contemplate. You know, in terms of uh, yin and yang, in terms of which one is because there's all kinds of different things we throw at those at those names. But I think the idea of the unconditioned and conditioned is that the two mutually imply one another basically Mm -hmm. is you can't they they define each other by their being opposites so going back to the basic tenets of yin and yang that they're mutually interdependent and kind of define each other and can't exist without each other so if you have something that's fundamentally free open and unfixed that doesn't mean anything that's nothing (laughs) because the things are free they are free to limit themselves Is because we're free, we have the freedom to condition ourselves. We're free to condition ourselves. If we weren't, then nothing would ever happen. There would be no
1: universe. So, yes. Well, and conditioned life, even though it's got plenty of suffering, it gives us an opportunity to have all kinds of experiences, some of which are extremely pleasurable. Absolutely. And interesting. You know, others of which are just horrible beyond description. We get both.
0: Yeah. Also, yin and yang. And the, the Chinese view is a little bit less depressing <laughs> than the Buddhist view. Isn't depressing either. Like, at least like the original the, the view it's often interpreted that way that, you know, the fundamental reality is kind of a, a human condition being dukkha or, or unsatisfactory. But the Chinese view is like, yes, sometimes, but we also have all these wonderful experiences. They're just transitory. They're just not permanent. They don't lead to permanent satisfaction, but we can, enjoy them as they come. And that's also the, how we not, we don't create fate, more fate, is that when negative experiences happen to us, we say, oh, that was terrible. And I don't want it. And I'll do anything to not make that happen again. Or that was so amazing. I will do anything I can to make it I happen I can't wait again. to
1: get more of that, right? Yeah. Both of those are conditioned.
0: Yeah. Enjoy it as it happens and then let it go as it goes. And then life is just the, a kind of has its flow to it. That's the idea of Wu Wei is that you just kind of, you know, the idea of you just go with the flow, but
1: it's definitely an ecstatic. So I am going to uh, enjoy this COVID as it happens. <laughs> I'm going to have some COVID and look into the experience of it. I mean, I'm, I'm just taking a, you know, an example from modern life, uh-huh. right? Or I'm having a horrible relationship. Yeah. You know, it's like, let's look into that. How does that happen? Yeah. What's my role, right? If, if I'm sick, like, oh, wow. This is how lungs are when they are not functioning properly. Mm -hmm. Or I didn't even realize what good digestion was until I have bad digestion. Yeah. So it seems to me, and and people come, I suspect people go to you for readings, maybe even as an acupuncturist. And and I think there's just this question that us humans have in general of like, what am I here for? Mm -hmm. I think it drives many of us, whether we're conscious of it or not. Like, what am I here for? Yeah. And I think this gets into what you're talking about with fate, and it gets into what you've also been talking about with character, that we bring something to this human enterprise. Mm -hmm. And we're often mystified by it, and we're mystified by our, our place in it, and we're mystified at how our actions will so often bring us results that were completely unintended.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's tough, I think, in in the modern world as well, because the context that we live in, the culture, there's just so much pressure, just to like one, we have to figure out how to exist. You know, we have to earn enough money just to pay the rent and to mm-hmm. eat and all the things. And we live in a, a society that fundamentally doesn't support us, not really. So there's this threat all the time that we have, and uh, it's really hard in that context to do something, especially if you have circumstances of fate, like extremely challenging family obligations or illness or things like that, that demand you just got to get to work. You really don't have any time to slow down or have any space to ask these bigger questions. And I think most people are fundamentally unsatisfied. And I think if asked, of course, people would want to do something with their life that's deeply meaningful and to find their purpose or to find their... My teacher, Dharma, he calls this, you find you're naughty, which means your flow, Mm. that you're doing something that's contributing to the world, also gives you meaning, that also allows you to earn a living and so on. But it's definitely a privilege to have the time and the energy to do that. Or you can do what I did, which is spend 15, 20 years in college, living off student loans, asking that question. (laughs) Like, what am I doing and figure it out? That's also a privilege as well. But You know, I personally, I could not conceive of doing anything that wasn't deeply meaningful. So that's been my fundamental struggle in life. Like, what am I doing? And it's also deeply embedded in my astrology. The central kind of challenge of my life is, what am I doing?
1: Well, I'm with you on that one, brother, because I have been vastly, phenomenally unsuccessful (laughs) at doing anything that didn't somehow resonate with me in a meaningful way. I have just not been able to keep at it. Yeah. I have tried some different jobs. I've tried some different careers. I've tried different things. Yeah. And if it didn't somehow resonate, then I just couldn't do it. I see people around me. They're able to do it. Yeah. But I couldn't do it. I really thought I was pretty flawed and broken and, you know, lucky that I've been able to patch together the life that I've patched together because that question of what am I here for? Mm -hmm. It's a very powerful question. It's a very driving question. Yeah. And it's coupled with, I I suspect something in my character. It's like, this has got to be like damn meaningful. Yes. Number one, it's got to be meaningful. Number two, it's got to be helpful and and of service to others. What's your birth year? 1957. I am a fire rooster.
0: Mm, Fire rooster. Fire rooster. Yeah. That's my month. I was born in a fire rooster month.
1: Okay. I was born in Fire Rooster Year. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, well, I definitely, that's been my experience. I for sure could not, like, I've done a lot of things. I've done a lot of jobs. I've tried a lot of things, but always searching for something that mm-hmm. that resonated. And that's in everything relationships and career path, all that stuff. If it doesn't, then I kind of get fundamentally not just dis- disinterested. It's just like literally, maybe it's the problem of being a bit idealistic, but also, Inspired and having aspiration and having this kind of deeper or broader spiritual view of what's possible and what is what is possible in, in human life and just not settling.
1: Yeah, well, lucky for you, you practice Chinese medicine now because yeah, that is one of the applied aspects of Chinese philosophy. I think it's one of the applied aspects mm-hmm. of so much of this stuff that we've been talking about. You can do something with it in physical reality. Mm-hmm. And you can contact energies that we all carry without, like, using our language or our mind. Absolutely.
0: Well, I dig it so far. It's an amazing practice. You know, I've been in it pretty seriously just for the past uh, month. This is my first month of, like, true, real practice.
1: Well, there's that 15 years of exploration and then one month of true practice. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. I mean, you bring all of that to it. Yeah. I've got friends that are artists and sometimes people ask him, how long did it take you to like throw that pot? And we'll say, eh, 25 years and 35 minutes, mm-hmm. right? They can like whip it out in 35 minutes, but it took 25 years of getting to that.
0: Yeah. And that's what I, why I like about it. And one of the reasons why I chose it as well, because it's definitely, it's fascinating and it's such a um, reciprocal Mm. you know it's a participatory event it's not something that's like i'm doing to somebody else i've gotten ying in chinese the reciprocity
1: yes the Mm reciprocity
0: so it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating it's weird acupuncture is very strange
1: it is very strange and i got news for you yeah it gets weirder the longer you do it yeah i bet you know we study
0: it and we i'm not even sure what it is really i mean we have all so many different ideas about it and there's different views. By the end of the day, this experience of being there in a room with somebody, feeling their pulse, and then putting needles in them is just like, it's wild, especially this this idea of context. Mm -hmm. Like I have no idea what this person walking in the room, what their context for this is. And I'm getting a lot of like first experiences. That's also been interesting. My first month of practice that I've gotten a lot of people who it's their first time getting acupuncture. I say it's more than half of the people coming in it's like, they have no idea what it is. They just kind of heard about it that maybe it could help them with their neck pain or something. And it's like, and then I, you know, start doing this thing. I start doing this dance with them and asking all those questions, taking their pulse and, and this experience of like feeling and seeing these changes happen in people, you know, you're put a needle in the wall. That pulse just changed. What does that mean? Like, or like, you know, you somebody with 20 years chronic condition and then after like one treatment and they're like, wow, I felt amazing. And they're like, huh? <laughs> what did I do? I don't even know what I did. <laughs>
1: like, yeah. Well, I suspect some of it has to do with us and what we did. But more importantly, it has to do with something that has been lying latent in them. Yes. And that just, that gets invigorated, that gets activated, that gets, we've been talking about this for the past hour, that there's all these influences that we have. And there's all these layers, and some of them we're aware of, and some of them we actually identify with. That's where we get our character. But then there's all these other parts that we are not identified with, mm-hmm. and yet they're there. But we're not really using those resources, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Acupuncture sometimes hooks, this is my understanding of it at this point, or at least my working hypothesis, that acupuncture hooks people up with these other... Parts of themselves and now they can see things they couldn't see before they can heal things they couldn't heal before they can be in ways that they didn't know they were capable of being
0: yeah and i think we're primed to do this like again like if i'm such a newbie with this that i but I, in a way maybe it's like i have a kind of freshness to it like coming into the practice where i'm like just see, starting to see it in action and trying to really act have this question of like, wait, what are we doing to people? That uh, and I go back to something that Heiner, so one of my main teachers at uh, N.U. M. Heiner Fruhhoffi, he said a lot that this is the the body we're inspiring. We are we are not doing something to them, you know, from the outside, but rather stimulating the body's natural capacity to heal itself. And if the body is a disorder, is in disarray, or what acupuncture is stimulating is this kind of the idea of the imperial fire? Perhaps that the the body knows how to heal itself, and it's not the specifics of what we do. It's this how this intention that's coming through the practitioner and through the needle, and the body gets that stimulus, and it's not so much whether it doesn't matter if it's stomach thirty six or thirty seven. It just knows like oh like it gets this impulse, and starts to reorient around it and it's the natural wisdom of the body that has this capacity to put itself in order. Anyways, that's like kind of how I've been <laughs> starting to conceive it. It's
1: Well, you know, I, I think it's actually bigger than that and, and especially in having this conversation with you today and considering all the different bodies that we inhabit, considering how we kind of create our own fate, mm-hmm. how we have a character and how we create it or how we allow it to change. I think all of that comes into how acupuncture works or could be brought in. As we're having this conversation, it has come to mind for me. This is just something I just realized that I think what acupuncture does is it helps break people out of, let's say, less than optimal homeostasis that their body is in, right? Our bodies are fantastically homeostatic. They'll find a balance. It may not be a great balance for us. But they'll find a balance that's like, I'm going to keep it here. And it might be skewed a little bit the wrong way for a life that's healthy and happy. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, yeah, I'm going to use the word break here. We break the balance that a person has so that they can find one that has more coherence to it. You know, there's this character Lee, which is like the pattern of colors in, in a piece of jade or the grain in a in a piece of wood mm-hmm. right we all have a li and i suspect that acupuncture it softens that a bit and we have an opportunity then for that you know as you would call it the unconditioned or i'm going to call it the jung chi that part that that's upright and knows what's upright to have a chance to repattern things a bit mm-hmm. acupuncture softens us a bit it makes us a little bit more malleable so that these other things can come through Mm -hmm. yeah it is definitely weird stuff (laughs) yeah
0: and patterns again they were talking i think highlight one word that definitely comes up a lot is this patterns and uh, how we're patterned and we pattern ourselves, our behavior and all these things that pattern us and and so on And, and acupuncture perhaps introducing a a different a pattern breaking out that like yeah the habitual stagnant pattern and and putting one that's in the body trying to reorient around it perhaps the same with astrology you know same with all these things are introducing something into the stream of of somebody's life that breaks them out of their what they've adapted to because there's something that's fundamentally true about human beings is that we are very adaptable mm-hmm. and no matter what circumstances in we will adapt to it to some degree and if we don't
1: good luck with that
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know, we can we can adapt to a lot and this is all again come because we're we are malleable our nature is free so and, We work with the circumstances that we're given,
1: Yeah, but everything
0: is just these kind of patterns.
1: (laughs) Patterns. And I'm coming back to we are both free and we are conditioned. Mm -hmm. And here we are with that yin and yang again. Mm -hmm. And you can't come down completely on one side. It's like you have to hold both simultaneously. I want to turn for a moment. I know we've been at this for a little while, but if I could have a little bit more of your time. Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you, and I, man, we could go on for a long time with this because-
0: yeah, we haven't even talked about the blog and the uh, water tiger year.
1: I wanted to talk more about that. We might have to, well, let's, let's just see where it goes. We might have to do like a part two here in the near future. I am curious, this is a little shift here in subject, about some of the uh, like patterns, constellations. I'm going to call them images or archetypes mm-hmm. that go with Pole Star Astrology. After talking with Anne, um, I had her do a reading for me. and She brings up some of these different characters. Uh-huh. And she talked about the Oracle. Yes. Right? That there's this there's this idea of the Oracle as part of a chart. And it's like an archetypical influence in our lives. And I really cottoned to that. And I was very curious about that because in our Western world, we don't hear so much about Oracle as an influence. I mean, certainly it's there in in Greek culture. I remember as a kid, I loved reading the Greek mythology. I just, I couldn't get enough of it. I'd like read it and then I'd reread it and I'd read it again. You know, it's just, I loved it, right? And there's like the Oracle of Delphi, right? There's like this Oracle influence and the Oracle never gives you a straight answer, Mm -hmm. right? The Oracle is always this like disruptive kind of influence that, that gives you an opportunity to repattern yourself. So maybe the Oracle is a little bit like an acupuncture needle in that sense. Now, I remember her talking about oracle, that there's this influence of oracle, and I don't really understand that, but how do I say this? That concept, that idea, that archetype just kind of landed for me, and now I'm really curious about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those things I cannot say I understand it, but I feel like I've been clued into something, like, okay, watch for these like I'm going to call it an oracle influence. Maybe it's like a trickster influence in a sense. Mm-hmm. But I'm just starting to work my way into trying to grok what that oracle influence, what that oracle archetype is. Can you share a little bit your sense of the oracle energy, how that might land in our lives? And Yes. Yeah, great.
0: So yeah, going back to the view that pulsar astrology is essentially looking at our ancestors
1: mm. what is this family therapy <laughs>
0: <laughs> all our relations is in the system again uses these uses these symbols called the 12 the royal court mm. and the emperor being the ruling star of faith the emperor and the empress and this is the emperor is the pole star and uh, so ever that shows up in your chart there is this that's the kind of central pivot point you know when you look at the picture of the pole star in time lapse photography, everything swirls around that point. It's that, mm-hmm. the North Star. So that's, and always to the right hand of that star is this character, the Oracle. So it's in a fixed position, it's always at the right hand of the Emperor.
1: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. The Oracle is at the right hand of the emperor. Yes. The oracle's a right hand man.
0: <laughs> well, the figure and the actual symbol is not non-binary, I guess we'd call it. It's that of a for lack of a better word, shaman. Mm. China always had a state oracle, and there's a whole system of training oracles. And, you know, it's a tr- in traditional culture, this idea of somebody in the village is a kind of shaman. Somebody is has this capacity to be a source of what we call divination, or a source of you know, an oracle, meaning that the oracular ability to have some kind of vision, some kind of connection to what is unseen, some kind of broader view of all of these patterns interacting and all these things happening and in a kind of capacity to see what, what ordinary people don't, to the influence of the unseen world. And if, from the traditional point of view, again, this, what does the oracle divine is the voice of the ancestors. The idea that the dead are communicating to us all the time, that the dead are not really dead in the sense of gone, but that their patterns, their echoes kind of live on and uh, and are actually present everywhere. And so the oracle is the image of a of a shaman in trance, a shaman who is in this idea of the Wu, the dancing you know shaman in, in the character Ling, you know the characters are dancing under the rain,
1: yes, yes, bringing
0: the rain. So there's somebody who is lost, their in trance, and they've opened up into something, something. And what do they see? And whatever comes up, you know. So a, an oracle is fundamentally in a relationship with people in the community, and they're kind of in this relationship. With all these other factors that are influencing all of us. And so the oracle and their job is to, to be a voice for that of the unseen factor of life, the voice of the ancestors, the voice of spirits. This idea that, too, we're not just in a, a human realm, we're actually in, we share this space with lots of other spirits, lots of other beings. There is, you know, nature spirits and uh, gods and demons and ghosts all floating around in the same space, and we don't really see them. Uh, but the oracle, maybe can and the oracle can see all these things that again so putting it in a more modern maybe idea what we've been talking about how there's all these different factors influence us all the times the oracle is the place in your chart where you are most aware of that voice is speaking the loudest and it's the place where the influence of we can call it providence or some kind of divining rod it's a guide the good job of the oracle is to filter into it to all of these different factors whether it's the influence of dead the ghosts in your life it's the, whether it's the influence of spirits whatever that influence is it's the job the voice of the oracle to then kind of point the way through all of that and to give you a divination and so when you throw a e jing you throw the joe you get a divination that's an oracle you know it's not specific It's kind of like, but it does point us in a certain direction. It does give you a certain symbol again to follow. And then that's the job of of the Oracle is to do that. And it's always again at the right hand of the emperor, meaning that it's influence in our chart and in our lives is the pointing the direction that we need to go to unravel our fate. So the emperor is the primary influence of fate in this lifetime. That's the main thing we're here to do. But how we do it, how we make sense of all the influences, how we get out of the tangle, the oracle is the one that, that shows us the kind of way. And everybody has that influence in our life. And it seemed to be the collective wisdom of your ancestors. So your own ancestors, we have many positive, resolved ancestors who finished their human karma and now exist as a kind of beneficial radiance in your life and in, in your, the resolution of fate, not just for you, but of the whole ancestral stream. And the Oracle is a place where they're all ganging up basically and just shouting, go there, go there, do this. And so it's a question of whether or not we can hear that
3: mm-hmm.
0: or whether, and, and perhaps whether or not we are that voice itself. So sometimes it's an influence in the chart where that might be somewhere in the chart that's helping you find the way, but then you also have might the fate that you are actually that, oracle. Like some people have the fate of being an oracle themselves, that their primary influence in life is to be this kind of influence, this kind of voice, this kind of divining rod for other people. So it's very interesting to look at this star and this influence in people who are astrologers, people who are healthcare practitioners, people who are therapists, people who are help do that for other people, help people get their life in order, help them get direction, help them sort out all this these influences that are driving people crazy that's the oracle's job but you have to be a little crazy to do that as well so the oracle is not like it's this willingness to open into the kind of meditative state and to let yourself be guided by mm. the universe in a sense like so the capacity to do this to the capacity to relax into the kind of flow that's going on underneath everything and let that guide you and let the natural wisdom of the ancestors or of enlightened gods and goddesses or whatever it is out there that's helping us to become like a, a vessel. So the idea of being a, a medium, so a trance medium or a vessel for something. So is the question too of the, what, what are we vessels for? Mm. Uh, so you're a vessel for the ancestors, are you a vessel for the lineage? So a Chinese medicine to become, to really tap into, or in, in any tradition where there's lineage, this idea of You're opening up into this flow of experience and letting that guide you rather than your own conceptual mind and letting that make decisions for you. You're like, oh, why did I choose that formula? Well, because I have this huge, the lineage behind me and they gave me that formula. I didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden I knew which one or something like that. That's the oracular presence.
1: So the oracle would then show up in moments of synchronicity. Yeah. The oracle would show up in okay, that's like the fifth time this week I've heard someone recommend a book or it shows up in, I mean, we see this in our practices all the time. We'll go through periods where it's like there's a bunch of patients and they're all showing up with the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you mentioned too that the oracle this like shamanistic influence and what little I know of shamans, they're like the village weirdo. Yeah. Right. Like
0: I said you gotta be pretty weird. Yeah.
1: They're weird. I mean, they're really weird. I mean, they're weird motherfuckers. <laughs> right? Because they're kind of living in between worlds. Yes. And you've got, you know, like the regular world of convention. Okay, so we all need to have a certain amount of us that's conventional, because, you know, after all, you gotta be able to get to the grocery store and figure out how to make some money so you can go to the grocery store and buy food and, and just like get along in society. There's always that conventional aspect. And you look at that in any human culture but then there's always the piece that like mixes things up or the piece that's able to look you know behind like the workings so to speak Mm -hmm. and those people are weird yep they say things that seem inappropriate and they're not operating on the usual rules of decorum Mm -hmm. and there's like a really thin line between a crazy person yeah and like a healer shaman yeah
0: This saying that says 99% crazy, crazy, 100% crazy. Enlightened is
1: you're enlightened. So, so that's kind of a tough spot to inhabit.
0: Yes. And uh, we don't have a place for these people in our culture. So this idea that oracles, basically it's a fundamental people who are oracles and have this fate and karma to be Oracle, you know, we're born with a fundamental sensitivity Mm. and a fundamental kind of capacity and that they can't really turn off because it's natural, natural to them. And if we don't receive training, if we don't have context for this, then it is likely that we go a bit crazy or if full on we can't participate in society. And I think all of the poor souls who uh, have had this experience of being having no place and having no guidance and having nobody who could give them context for their experience early on, uh, this idea of we could talk about mental health and mental illness, which I don't really believe exists. I just think people who we label mental ill or crazy or whatever, they're just oracles who haven't had the right training. Mm. And the Taoist and the training was primarily that, that it was identifying people who had this ability and then giving them the kind of training in life to then not suffer because of their being weird Mm -hmm. (laughs) and giving a context for that weirdness. Not suffer from the gift. Yeah, then give them um, a path, and so Mm. the state oracle of China. This there's a, and you know Tibet has four state oracles. There's oracles all over the place in uh, in Korea, Mongolia. You know, these being able to identify these people early on in life, train them to use that gift because it's a gift to be of benefit to other people. But if it doesn't get nurtured, and if it doesn't, you know, then it's yeah, suffer a lot in this in this culture in particular but we all have a little bit of that.
1: Well, of course. Yeah, because we're humans and we have the conditioned and the unconditioned and there are voices that come through. I mean, even if you just look at something as simple as like family systems therapy, we have these voices and they come from our parents or from their parents or from somewhere in the family. So there's that as well. I mean, I think we're, many of us are cognizant of that level. It's pretty graspable by our Western mind.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember studying some psychology years ago, and there's this cat from, I think, England, R.D. Lang, who was really looking at mental illness and especially schizoid episodes and some sort of breaks as breakthroughs rather than breakdowns. And I think he was doing some of that work that you're talking about, of like, how do you take this influence where someone is like in between worlds and root them in a way? so that it can be helpful any thoughts like in our modern world i suspect some people listening to this go oh yeah that kind of explains my experience and why it's so damn difficult to live in this world yeah so what do you do if you have like a bunch of oracle energy and you haven't had some guidance or mentorship to use that gift
0: well, there's a lot of them out there, and a lot of them go to acupuncture school. <laughs> you know, I find like the acupuncture schools are basically lots full of traumatized empaths, traumatized oracles who didn't had, <laughs> couldn't find a place and to do what, something to do with their kind of weirdness.
1: Yeah. Well, in so many healing traditions.
0: Yes, lots lots of healing traditions. Yeah.
1: I mean, there and we have this image, and again, Greek mythology. Right, I loved it as a kid. The image of the healer, it's a heal it's a wounded healer. Yeah, the image of the healer is a wounded healer. I think Chiron is mm-hmm. is the character. Yes. So healers are fundamentally and consciously wounded, as opposed to unconsciously wounded.
0: Yeah. So the idea of the shaman too is that they are they get their power from being brought to death, close to death, that they have to go out into the jungle or the desert or whatever and uh, become and kind of come to the edge. And you know they're already in between worlds, like you said, but to, this ability to go as far out as they can and then come back. And in that process, of course, physician, heal thyself. You know, you have to have that. There's that mandate before you actually help anybody else that you should work on your own stuff a little bit. You don't have to be perfect, but you should... In a lot of Chinese medicine schools, they do have this idea in this Chinese medical practice that self cultivation, you have to have this. If you don't, then you're really probably not going to help anybody but the imperative to Mm. heal your own stuff first and shamans and people who have this kind of oracular ability there's no way around it because it's so intense in your experience that it could if unchecked yeah lead to mental illness or lead to intense physical illness or something like that but there's something about going out to the edge again and coming close to death or even crossing over and seeing what is on the other side that gives you this capacity. I don't want to say see because it's not something that's like necessarily visual, but it's felt and this understanding of like, yeah, what all of these different, if people had any idea, like the enormity of the context that they're in, they wouldn't be able to handle it. Like if people woke up all of a sudden and saw the influence of all the ancestors, all the spirits, all the ghosts, all of the conditioning all these the spheres of conditioning of, of culture and history and race and gender and all these things that are happening all at once, like people would just go insane. Like that you couldn't you couldn't handle it because there's it's just that my teacher called it waking up in Times Square. Uh-huh. Like imagine if you go to sleep nice in your bed and the next day you woke up and there's all this madness happening. That's we're actually in that situation all the time. The amount of stuff that we have to screen out just to function. Mm-hmm. But this is also It's called being in the human realm. If you're living in the human realm, this is ordinary. It's not like a big deal because you're cultivating normal human energy, normal human pattern. So you don't have the experience of spirits bothering you. But that influence is there and it is influencing us whether we know it or not. And the Oracle, again, people who are oracular have this, they can't shut it off. So to be able to make sense of it and be able to have a way of making it useful for other people and that comes in so many forms. So I think like whether it's being, yeah, being a therapist or being an astrologer or being an acupuncturist or being an artist. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people who are oracular don't necessarily use their ability directly one-on-one with people, but they use them as artists or as musicians. And that's another kind of way that they contribute and and help heal people or show people the miraculous ecstatic dance of madness. That's happening all the time. They might put it on a piece of paper, as a painting or compose a piece of music and people are like, wow, that's amazing. And you're like, yeah, this is, I'm channeling. Yeah. I am an Oracle and I am channeling my experience of what's happening inside me or what's happening in the universe. You become, whether you step up, put a a musical instrument in front of it or a paintbrush behind it, it's the same experience.
1: That's where all the great poets draw from too.
0: Yeah. This like (laughs) the multiverse of madness,
1: the multiverse of madness. Yeah, and a really skilled oracle will be able to, I suspect, have some control over that aperture, at least in terms of- Yes, this is important. <laughs> especially in terms of working with other people. Yes. To have a sense of that aperture, like give enough disruption that, again, we we're talking about homeostatic balance, disrupt the homeostatic balance just enough to let something in Yeah. without- Utterly destroying a person's human realm, because man, we need that, or you can't go to the grocery store. Yeah, yeah, and that's the training. So this is the spiritual path in a
0: lot of ways, and what practice is helping us to do, and, and especially the case if you have this oracular capacity. But even for ordinary people, quote unquote ordinary people, there aren't any. But the <laughs> we're all we're all possessed, basically, of, of a lot. And anyways, um, just how aware
1: are we of our possession?
0: Yes, how, and the more aware you are, the more. It's called opening the, it's called the treasury of worms and traditionally the treasury of red dust in Chinese. And
3: Mm.
0: that would basically have this like, we're sitting on top of a lot anyway, but the capacity to, to manage that experience. So that's the, the training of the oracles. You have to know how, if you don't have the capacity to control that influence, if you're just open to it, if you're like an exposed wire by nature, which a lot of people are, uh, and a lot of people are by character as well astrologically, like rabbits <laughs> or snakes, but this is like, if you don't know how to manage that, and if you don't know how to turn it off and you get, there's so much influence out there. And there's actually a lot of things that you can get taken over by and you can get possessed by, and that you can get influenced in a negative way because not everything out there that's trying to communicate with us and trying to influence us is positive because everything is trying to eat. Everything is eating in the universe. Everything is fundamentally just trying to survive. And if we don't know what we're channeling, if we don't know what we're becoming a vessel for, if we don't know how to manage the experience of being an oracle, then there's a lot that can come through us and a lot that can actually make us ill. So the the idea of being a, a shaman or something like that is not something to take lightly. And it's, there's a lot of new age work that gets done to do to do kind of a work like this without much context. And so people can actually, who don't have the proper training can actually become ill or get possessed by things that they, and they don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. Cause unfortunately, yeah, like I said, my, this is something my teacher has said a lot. Everything is eating.
1: (laughs) Um, That is a powerful thought. I heard you say that and I just wrote it down because I didn't want to forget it. Everything in the universe is trying to eat.
0: That's the big one. Yeah, Just the bane drive. We're trying to reproduce and we're trying to eat. That's the, we got. I mean, this is, we can't really avoid, this is the human path. We have to know what is fundamental to us as human beings. The things that we cannot avoid is the spiritual path. So this is living and dying. We can't avoid that for some reason. You didn't ask to be born and if you're born, you're going to die. That's like, we can't avoid that. And then we got to eat <laughs> and that's like every damn day, you know, we can't stop that one. That's right. I mean, maybe you could skip a couple of days and then we got to sleep. And then the traditional food is actually we don't reproducing is another one, but that's a big drive. We all have it at least a little bit into this amount of which that drives our behavior is pretty strong as well. So that's where we find the spiritual path is on the edge of those things that we can't mm. negotiate with. It's non-negotiable. You gotta eat. But and if you don't, there's not a lot of things that'll just let themselves die of starvation. And especially, you know, humans are in this position where we're quite that we have a self-awareness that other beings don't have this is why in the buddhist view the human realm is considered the most desirable for enlightenment is because we have this capacity for equanimity that other beings don't have so we're kind of somewhat in the middle and everything to either side of us has way less self-awareness and is way more driven by their compulsions by their desires by their fears by their hunger and so on and so if you open up as a medium to all these things that are out there no you don't know think something might just be hungry and
1: Hungry Ghost. Hungry Ghost. Wow. Okay. Well, Gregory, I would love to talk with you more, but I think it's probably time to wind it down for one day. I, I did want to talk with you. There's so much to talk about. We come back and, and have a chat sometime? Absolutely. Yeah. That'd be great. So in the meantime, because I would like to talk with you about this Tiger Year thing, because man, when I, I mean, we're having this conversation right now. We're in it. We're in the middle of March right now. And I remember thinking Tiger Year in the beginning. It's like, oh, Tiger Year. Oh, shit. Buckle up. And uh, like, no kidding. It's like- a- We're seeing it.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't want to say that, uh, like I wrote in this big conversation about what's happening in the world and how we can understand what's happening in the world in terms of like this lens, just to give a, a preview if we want to do another chat and talk about the Tiger Year. But like, I didn't full out say it because I don't do that. But I said, if there's a year to go to war, this is it. This is it. And we look at the last Tiger Year, Cuban Missile Crisis- there's a lot of that kind of drama happening in the world.
1: It was the Cuban Missile Crisis, wasn't it? And that's yeah. that's so fascinating because, well, okay, here's that oracle like bumping around at the edges. Uh-huh. I was talking with a friend just the other day about you know the situation with Ukraine and Russia. They're bumping up against NATO nuclear weapons. It's like yeah, it's like the Cuban Missile Crisis all over again. Look at that. Water
0: Tiger Year, yeah. And just to say, during that year too, there was a 178 nuclear bombs detonated in 1962 there's the largest nuclear worldwide testing in the world and, that, and that's just looking at that energetically that's for some reason yeah. the world went nuts testing nuclear bombs that year there was nuclear drama that was the word that i chose in my blog is this drama and i think it's just getting started so how do we make sense of it and how do we navigate it and what does it kind of mean because the influence of time is so big and ongoing you know we're always experiencing the consequences of things anyways yeah that's <laughs> we can talk about that another time but the the tiger is a hell of a symbol it's a hell of a year
1: we'll bring that up another time
0: you know maybe it won't cuz like the cuban missile crisis teetered out it was a big drama a big lead up but then there was a lot of consequences that happened after that talking about JFK that's another thing you know so he was doing a lot in that year that was antithetical to the american method of operation like he was basically trying to splinter the CIA he was trying to fracture the military industrial complex in the united states which is very a very tiger kind of thing, rebellion. He was, he was rebelling against that. And there was a, a lot of consequences that started, I think, personally looking back at history in that year and that have influenced us very strongly since then. So it's a question of what kind of influences are we in now and what are going to be the repercussions many, many years down the line for the kind of things that are happening. Yeah, it's a fascinating. We start studying history and, and looking at it through the lens of astrology, it becomes pretty powerful.
1: Okay. So, for all y'all listening, if you're not already familiar, Gregory has done a sort of glimpse at the tiger year. It's on his website. Yes. And I'll put that up on the show notes page so y'all can go to it. But Gregory, give us that address so if people are listening right now, they can just type it into their portable computer.
0: Yes, at tigersplayastrology.com. And- I will just say quickly though, you know, I am not currently doing readings at the moment, just in case people listen to this and I get flooded. Right now, my kind of focus is on practicing Chinese medicine, but I do have a wait list and I will do them again at some point, but just uh, to let people know that I'm not currently doing readings, but the blog is there and it's called A A Shipped Across the Sea of Suffering Analysis of This Water Tiger Year. Uh, And it's quite in depth. They said it's not an easy read. And I, I don't hold back. It's a lot of my own personal interpretation and opinion, but I hope that people find it interesting and informative. And thank you again for having me. Too, I appreciate the invitation to come on, and an excellent conversation.
1: Gregory, thank you so much for your time today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. It has stirred up so much inquiry for me. I'm especially cognizant at this moment of considering character, nature and fate that's just I kind of have my teeth in that ever since you mentioned it earlier in the conversation and kind of the connection and malleability between these things it just it just kind of resonates so thank you so much for that and I will look forward to the next time that we get together yeah you're welcome I look forward to it as well It is so easy as a human to see the world as human-centric. It's easy enough to look out into the world and see the other intelligences, the trees with their interwoven networks of nourishment and communication, the critters that fly, and even the cats lounging in the springtime sunbeam. It's clear that they have a spirit and intelligence that's quite different from ours. It's harder to grasp that there are forces and energies unseen and influential, that the longing of ancestors is somehow imprinted upon us. It makes me wonder how far back do certain longings go. And as we discussed in this episode, just what constitutes this I that seems so solid, but as so many wisdom traditions remind us, is nothing more than a collection of stories Fragments of emotion and moments frozen in time that seem so very, very solid, but are fleeting as whispers in the wind. I am reminded in this conversation that our world is extraordinary beyond measure. And for myself, I don't know if the stars have anything to do with it, but that sense of there being a pole star in our life, that our fate is influenced by our character. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.